What don't we know about that state legislator trip to the U.S. southern border? And does it matter? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Wednesday, July 19th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Seth Tupper joins us for today's Dakota Political Junkies conversation. We'll talk about lobbyist transparency and lawmaker transparency. We get to know the new executive director of South Dakota's Democratic Party. We'll ask Dan Ollers about his priorities. Artist Hector Curiel returns to the studio for a preview of his upcoming exhibition. Plus, the philosophy of observation. How learning to look before you form an opinion might change how you do business and how you experience the world. That's later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Well, in areas of the world rife with food insecurity, many people turn to the wild instead of the market to find supplemental nourishment. But does consuming wild foods mean you're better off nutritionally? And what might dietary diversity mean for cultures who forage as part of traditional values? Dr. Jennifer Zavaleta Cheek set off to eastern India to answer those questions. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Natural Resource Management at South Dakota State University. She's joining me now from SDPB's Janine Basinger Studio at SDSU in Brookings. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So research into nutrition security. Tell me a little bit about how you designed this study. What were some of the questions that you were asking? A lot of the questions that we were asking focused on how people use wild spaces, in particular the forest, to forage for foods and how that affected their nutrition and food security. But a big part of the project that wasn't even featured in this paper was really about the role of women and women's empowerment in providing food for the family. All right, let's talk about that. You were asking women, uh, for example, when what they were eating, and they were saying there were certain times that they were getting more leafy green vegetables. Tell me a little bit about some of your findings. Sure. Well, I had the pleasure of going to India for my dissertation research, and we went to the same 1,200 households every month for about a year, a little over a year. And we asked men and women in the family, what are all of the items you eat from, and we did a 24-hour food recall survey. So from when you woke up in the morning to when you went to bed at night, tell me everything that you ate or drank. And then we identified where it came from. So often uh, people in these communities harvest their own food, whether that be from row crop, crop agriculture, obviously on a much smaller scale, or from kitchen gardens, or in the case of many people, they harvest wild foods from common lands, which are places where they have access, where cultivation isn't happening, or to the forest directly. And we kind of wanted to know, well, when are people collecting food from the forest? And is food from the forest actually contributing meaningfully to diets? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the relationships that you form. I know you're a scientist and this is data, but it's also data within context, which we're actually going to talk about a little bit later in the show, that thick data. How did the context of people's oh, sure. lives and, and gender, like you said, you know, empowerment, how did that show up in your research? Well, one of the things that's cool about this particular data set is that we collected data every month for a year. So we have a lot of seasonal variation that happens. 
oftentimes when researchers fly into a site or aren't from there, they come in when convenient for their schedule, they collect data that month, and then they leave. And we were able to see the seasonal differences of when people go to the forest. So in our case, uh, the monsoon season, which usually starts in June, of course, with climate change, the date is later in the season. And we found that during the, we found that dietary diversity is the lowest during this time. So you could imagine the crops that you've harvested from the year before are really low in stock, but you're not able to cultivate the crops that are currently in the ground. So we found at the time when people's food insecurity is the highest is also the time that they're going to the forest to collect foods. So when we talk about context, it's really important to think about the timing of when one collects data and what that then means for the people that are that are enduring the food insecurity. Yeah, and it takes time to do the science right, it sounds you like. Know, it, it takes a lot of time. And I'll tell you a little bit about, since you want to know about data collection in larger yeah. context, um, I am an American student from Texas who went to India and was illiterate. It, you know, I don't, yeah. we worked in nine different languages. I knew none of them. I managed a team of about 50 people. And being a woman in a very patriarchal society has its own challenges. But also working with such a diverse team was a, quite a challenge just because there's all sorts of things to communicate and to keep track of. We had all sorts of issues from an HR perspective, which mm. they don't teach you any of that when you're <laughs> getting your PhD and how to deal with that. Yeah. But I would say that the best part of collecting this data or the reason that it went so well, of course, there were snafus, plenty of them along the way, but in retrospect, went pretty well, was because I spent so much time cultivating the team itself and really trying to make sure that people felt very comfortable asking questions and being vulnerable when they didn't understand something. I even gave away prizes during training and people <laughs> asked, like, wait, I don't get it, <laughs> just to make sure that I actually collected the data I thought I was collecting or the data that I thought was culturally relevant. But until you create that environment where your enumerators feel comfortable telling you, like, actually, ma'am, you like totally missed the mark, right. you could be collecting the wrong data and not even know. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating stuff. Okay, so Nature Food Journal uh, publication. When I was reading this, I was thinking of the implications for indigenous people because I connected it with another article I read recently about cattle ranching in South Dakota and when it infringes upon some of those you know, uh, places where Native Americans forage, the impacts of that. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at your research, this study, which of course is in India, what do you hope the implications of it or the reach of it might be? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because I have another project here in South Dakota that's looking at local foods. Nice. And I think we greatly underestimate the role that wild foods play in the United States. So, so many of your listeners, I'm sure, are hunting, fishing, maybe they're foraging for wild asparagus in those ditches uh, while pheasant hunting or collecting mushrooms or otherwise. So there's often this stigma with research that, oh, wild foods are what poor indigenous people eat outside of the U.S. or just indigenous people here. But I'm really interested in better understanding the role of wild foods, in, in particular from hunting and fishing and how they contribute to diet in the U.S., because I think it's really underestimated and quite undervalued, given that a lot of people do it. And it provides a lot of nutrition, especially to people that otherwise can't purchase meats in, in the grocery store. 
Fascinating stuff. All right. Dr. Jennifer Zavaleta-Cheek from South Dakota State University. Congratulations on this work. And we thank you for sharing just a bit of it today. Hope to talk to you again. Absolutely. Thank you. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I am your host, Lori Walsh. Well, the South Dakota Democratic Party is under new leadership. Dan Allers was named its new executive director this spring, and he's with me now in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio. Welcome back, Dan. Thank you for having me on today. Now, you have had uh, various roles in the state legislature and in public life, but for people who don't know you, tell us a little bit about your history of public service. You're a business owner from Del Rapids, but there's been many times you've been on the campaign trail and uh, getting across the entire state, listening to what people's thoughts and hopes and frustrations are. Tell us about Dan. Well, uh, I, I guess first and foremost, I, I started uh, at 24. I became a business owner in my hometown of Del Rapids. Um, owned a, a Video Plus. I owned that for 20 years. I also owned several other stores and started a coffee shop in my hometown. I'm a cur- commercial property owner. Been involved with a lot of nonprofits, my local chamber of commerce. I'm still the president of the Del Rapids Community Fund, uh, the Haven Before and After School Program. Um, I've been on the Carroll Institute board. Uh, just, I enjoy serving. And it's a way to give back and a way to be involved and, uh, you know, help shape uh, our state. Uh, in 2006, I was elected to the South Dakota State Legislature. I served four years, uh, came back and was elected in 2016 and served a couple more years. I was a statewide candidate for U.S. Senate in 2020. And um, in between all it was that... It a tough year to be a statewide candidate. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting <laughs> it one. It was a difficult uh, campaign. I don't recommend <laughs> running in COVID. Hopefully yeah. we won't ever have to deal with that, <laughs> at least not in our lifetime anyways. Uh-oh. But yeah, and then uh, in between all that, I've been uh, working in the schools as a sub- full-time substitute teacher, uh, guest lecturing at colleges, you know, just staying busy. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what appealed to you about this role as executive director of the State Democratic Party. Uh, opportunity. Same reason I decided to stay in South Dakota. You see opportunity, opportunity to, to make things better, improve on things, help organizations grow. Um, I just wanted to take my experience that I've had, the things that I've learned in business and in politics and in the nonprofit world, and uh, go to work and, and help the South Dakota Democratic Party grow. How are you using your experience in the Appropriations Committee, which one of the my favorite things about interviewing you in the past was how well you could explain <laughs> the budget and appropriations and how it worked. You're very good at communicating that. Um, how are you using that understanding and that communication ability to sort of look at the Democratic Party, which has had struggles financially in the past, which needs a, a robust financial future? Tell me a little bit about what you're finding and where you think the opportunities for growth are. Well, yeah, you know, one of the first things I did was I started going through the budget, looking at what our expenditures are, uh, looking at how what are how our priorities were set in that budget, and then you know as I'm uh, as I'm moving forward here, we'll get to the end of the year and we'll have a new budget that we have to approve, and you know, looking at you know what are our struggles, our struggles are uh, communicating with the public, letting people know. Uh, who we are. Too often we're defined by our op- uh, our opponents, and that that is not how we should be marketing ourselves. 
we should be uh, putting that message out ourselves. Well, that means investing in those kinds of things. So those are, the, you know, that's one of the priorities that I'm, that, you know, that I'm looking at in our budget. We need to be able to communicate and get a message out there. Uh, we don't have as many surrogates as the Republican Party does, so we need to make use of those that we have, and then we're going to have to spend a little money on, on, on getting that message out there. Yeah. The um, uh, Atlantic Magazine just did in the last day, I think, a piece on the Tennessee Republican Party and the supermajority that they have there. Obviously, South Dakota has a supermajority of Republicans in the South Dakota State House. Um, there's not a ton of a comparison between Tennessee and South Dakota. I'm not saying that. But as I read that article, I thought about some of the challenges with what you said with a, a, a party that's defining uh, Democrats based on what's happening in Washington, D.C., for example. What does it mean to be a South Dakota Democrat? Well, I think if you if you take the time to, to look at the things that we work on, they're the same issues that uh, we've been passing on the ballot for the last 10, 12 years. You look at a fair minimum wage uh, that we couldn't get it done in the legislature, so it ended up on the ballot. And, you know, other organizations uh, help bring those things, uh, you know, that to fruition. And now we have a minimum wage that increases every year with the uh, consumer price index for inflation. Uh, you look at campaign finance reform and ethics. Uh, the people of South Dakota passed that back in 2016, and it was undone by the legislature. Uh, but the, the people voted for it. We worked to try and get that passed for years. The, the food tax, that's coming. You've seen medicinal marijuana, that passed. You've seen Medicaid expansion, those things have passed. These are all issues that South Dakota Democrats have fought for. They work really hard for the, the average working person in South Dakota. So for a young person who's very busy trying to figure out how to build a life, you know, right out of college, let's say, they know that those ballot issues are going to come up. So maybe if there's a specific issue that they care strongly about, they can go and have their voice heard on a ballot question. Why does it matter that they participate in, uh, you know, a local party um, gathering, a luncheon, a McGovern Day dinner, running for office? What is in public service for the next generation in this party, in this state, like right now, if you're talking to a group of young people and they say, you know, Dan, I don't know why I should really get involved. It is a very tough sell. Um, what I will say is that uh, my time in the legislature, I had quite a bit of success passing legislation. And, uh, but I will tell you the most success I had was due to young people being involved in the process, taking the time to show up and testify and peer. Uh, when, when a young person shows up and says this is important, whether it be uh, when they were looking at lim eliminating some tech scholarships from the universities, I had the head of the college Republicans testified on behalf of that bill. You know, when, it, when it's important to youth, I, the party part drops a little bit and it's more about uh, the issue. Uh, the, work I did with special education, deaf uh, education, it was the, those young people that showed up, those students, that made the biggest difference and had the biggest impact. It's really hard to sit eye to eye with a young person and tell them that you're just not worth my vote. And I, I think that if, uh, if they work together, if, they, if they're really passionate about things, they can really make a difference in this state, but they have to show up. Dan Allers is the new executive director of the state uh, Democratic Party. I'm sure this will be the beginning of many conversations. We thank you for stopping by today. I look forward to it. 
You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, when you strip down lobbying to its very basics, it's all about trying to influence a politician's belief and therefore their vote. And that practice has a huge impact on what gets into the law books. But as Seth Tupper reported in South Dakota Search Life, there is incredibly uh, little transparency in the industry, at least in South Dakota. A lot of times we don't really know what the state's lobbyists do or what they spend on what they're doing. Seth is editor-in-chief of the South Dakota Searchlight, and he is with me from STPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio in Rapid City to break it down. Seth, welcome back. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, Dan Allers was just talking about things that were voter-approved and uh, altered by the state legislature in the future, and lobbying is one of these issues where voters have expressed frustration before with what we don't know about lobbying. You did the research on this. Tell me a little bit about that first, and then we'll talk about how it's kind of playing out in the state right now. Yeah, so my interest in this was triggered in 2015. Um, The uh, Center for Public Integrity, which is a nationwide nonprofit, was hiring people in every state to be a state researcher on what they called the uh, state integrity investigation. And they had done this, I think, at least once before. I think it was 2012, and our mutual friend, the late, great uh, Denise Ross, had done the Mm -hmm. research then. And it was a really big time commitment, and it was was a great uh, freelance gig, but she just didn't have the time or desire to do it again. So um, she asked me if I was interested. I said I was and, and undertook the work. And Basically, uh, you know, the Center for Public Integrity compiled kind of a list of, you know, if, if, if we had the ideal set of laws in every state to prevent corruption, what would those laws and policies and practices be? And they kind of made a, a recipe or, or a, a very big laundry list of those types of laws, and then they hired somebody in every state to research, does your state have these laws and these policies and these practices, or to what extent do they have them? And so, uh, you know, basically they, as a researcher, they gave me uh, that list and, and said, go about researching this. And I had to uh, um, read uh, all kinds of state laws and, and <laughs> state policies and interview people and talk to people and come up with answers. Yes, we have this law or we have it partially or yes, we have it, but it's not enforced. And then I had to turn my research over for independent review and everybody in all 50 states did the same thing. And eventually they came out with this big Uh, report on all 50 states and how they ranked regarding uh, their laws uh, to prevent corruption. And we we ranked an F, and and one of our worst categories was lobbying disclosure. Yeah. What an education, though. Now I feel I can ask you anything about this. And this comes up again because three state lawmakers go to the U.S. southern border. Who are they funded by? Now, they tell us about the trip. They're very public about what they learned um, but we really don't know how much it costs. So tell me why you circled back to writing the column in Searchlight that you just did and uh, the inspiration for it, really. Well, it's always been on my mind since 2015. And, yeah. and just to back up a little bit, the reason why is, you know, uh, prior to that, I had never really seen the lobbying disclosure, uh, uh, spending disclosure reports that are filed in South Dakota. At that time, they weren't even on the Internet. And so I had to request them back in 2015 uh, from the Secretary of State's office. And when I got them, I started looking at these forms, and almost all of them just had the lobbyist name and who they worked for. And then there's like 15 lines to uh, report their expenditures, and it says, you know, attach additional sheets if you want to. And nobody ever reported any expenditures. 
just form after form after form after form, dozens and hundreds of forms that are just blank except for a person's name and, and their employer. And so, of course, huh. I thought, what in the world is going on here? Well, uh, you know, found in the research that we have we have so many exemptions in our, our lobbying disclosure laws that basically everything a lobbyist does is exempted from disclosure as an expense. We don't require them to disclose how much they're paid by their employer. We don't require them to disclose which bills they lobbied on, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I've always known that since the, the 2015 uh, state integrity investigation. And so recently when uh, um, it was three lawmakers, um, uh, Casey Crabtree, who's a senator from Madison, and Will Mortensen from Pierre, uh, Tony Van Eisen from Sioux Falls, uh, the latter two are representatives, they're all Republicans. Um, they were very public, and there were some stories written in other media about the fact that they went on this trip to the uh, border with Mexico in Texas uh, to get a tour and see what was going on down there. And uh, Americans for Prosperity took them on that tour. And Americans for Prosperity is a giant national, uh, you know, political nonprofit, basically, that spends millions to to influence politics and policy and laws. And uh, they're uh, an offshoot of Americans for Prosperity called the Americans for Prosperity Foundation, it turns out, funded this trip. And it just struck me how odd. Uh, I knew immediately that because of uh, the exemptions in our lobbying disclosure, you know, none of this would have to be formally disclosed as far as who paid for it, how much was spent, uh, et cetera. And I compared that in my commentary on our, on our website to the fact that, uh, you know, if I, I don't make political donations since I'm a journalist, but if I, if I, if I was just a, a non-journalist and I decided I wanted to give uh, Casey Crabtree 150 bucks for his campaign, he'd have to disclose that my name, my address, and the exact amount I gave on his campaign finance uh, forms. But if I'm a, if I represent a major national nonprofit with like $100 million in revenue a year, like Americans for Prosperity, and I want to pay for a trip to take three lawmakers uh, to the Texas border and pay for their flights, their lodging, their food, their ground transportation, I don't have to disclose any of that. <laughs> you know, it's just a really odd situation. I don't think many people would say that's how it was probably intended or, or how they would want it to work. Can the lawmakers disclose on their own? We flew coach. We, you know, stayed at somebody's house or we stayed at this hotel. I mean, because they did. I mean, I read Will Mortensen's, um, you know, assessment of what he did. You know, had I thought a, a nuanced approach or what he learned there you can argue whether or not they should be there or what they learned and what they're going to do next. But can my question to you is, you know, can the lawmakers say, here is a, a running list of everywhere we ate, and it was steak on this night, and it was fast food. Um, the I mean, maybe nobody would, but they could, right? Well, certainly they could, but then, of course, they'd have to deal with Americans for Prosperity, and this is a mm. group that went to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, to... to um, with a case to uh, keep from being required to disclose their, their top donors when uh, California tr uh, tried to make them do that. So, so whether that would, that would be something that would be kosher with Americans for Prosperity, I don't know. But certainly, yeah, I mean, the legislators could disclose uh, a certain level of things. And w when you bring that up, one of the things that's really funny about our lobbying disclosure forms that I just um, recalled when I, when I read the old Center for Public Integrity stuff this morning was there's actually a portion on our lob lobbyist disclosure form that instructs the lobbyists in capital letters, do not, in caps, include a lobbyist salary, fee, registration fee, travel, lodging, or personal meal expenses. Those are exempted from disclosure. And there's a, there's a all caps, bold warning not to disclose that 
just in case anybody would 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 get the crazy idea that they should disclose more than they have to. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's actually All on right. the form. Now, are most of the lobbyists when you look, you know, when you did this research, most of the lobbyists are South Dakota teachers, Americans for Prosperity, big national com- like who are lobbyists in Pierre? Well, and you know, the one good thing we do have is at least we require lobbyists to disclose their name and who they're working for. That, that's about all we get. They disclose that on the, on the disclosure forms. And when I last looked, there were both the employer and the lobbyist have to file forms. And it looked like um, there's about 700 and some odd forms that get filed. So lobbyists for anything and everything you can imagine from, like you say, uh, representing educators to lobbyists for the oil and gas industry to um, lobbyists for the carbon carbon pipelines that are proposed to be built in the state, to you know, lobbyists for um, the ethanol industry and uh, farmers groups and whoever you know, yeah. uh, whoever and whoever might be affected by any law that the legislature might pass. Uh, almost everybody has uh, uh, you know some kind of lobbyist that they hire, uh, an organized interest group that they hire. I want to pivot a little bit in the interest of time to another piece that you wrote about um, emergency and disaster money paying for border troop deployment. Because here we are again talking about the U.S. southern border, and it's coming out of the Emergency and Disaster Fund. You talked with Lee Schoenbeck, and he said that's not following the law. Help us understand what's happening here. Well, yeah, when we looked into this, it was, you know, the governor announced that um, she's going to send troops to the border again, which she's done previously. And the trigger for us was, you know, uh, one of the last times this happened, she used a donation uh, from some guy out of state who wanted to donate money to help send National Guard troops to the border to assist with, uh, you know, securing the border. This time, uh, she never said anything about any donation. So we asked where the money would come from. And, uh, yeah, she said it would come from this uh, emergency uh, and disaster fund. Um, And when we started looking into that, it was, you know, the purpose of that fund, as was stated when $2.5 million was approved for that fund in the last session, in every hearing in the legislature that it was talked about, uh, it was mentioned that this is for tornadoes, uh, natural disasters, hail, drought, whatever, helping South Dakotans uh, recover for uh, from these types of disasters, and uh, nowhere did anybody say that it was intended to, you know, send National Guard troops out of state. All right. So if the federal government sends, if the president sends the National Guard somewhere, it's federal pay status. If the state sends them, right. this last time it was a private donor, which caused controversy, and now it's the federal, or Z, I'm sorry, not federal, it's the state emergency and disaster fund. No wonder I'm confused. So. This is the governor saying, I'm going to send troops to Texas to help out another governor who was requesting my help. The state's going to pay for it. Am I tracking or am I off base anywhere? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's. And can they exactly do anything right about it? If legislators say, wait, wait, she can't do that, what is there a recourse? Well, I asked Lee Schoenbeck about that, and he was, he was sort of a little bit uh, coy about it, but he, he just basically said that, you know, if this is the way she's going to spend money in a way that we didn't intend, then she might find that she'll have a harder time next year uh, getting her budget requests filled um, because uh, it, there were some other examples of, of times uh, when, uh, you know, some legislators, including Lee Schoenbeck, didn't feel like uh, money that they appropriated was being spended, spent in exactly the way they intended. So, so what can they do? Um, you know, uh, they do control the purse strings and, 
Um, it doesn't appear that they'll do anything in the meantime, but if they really want to uh, next winter uh, when the, the governor makes her budget requests, they have the power to honor those or change them or reject them or, or whatever whatever they wish. Yeah, this is not uh, a group of lawmakers who necessarily have the best relationship with this governor to begin with. And this is increasing it, do you think? It's a more challenging, like, how do you think it will play out in session? Well, it's hard to say because, you know, people's long ways away, are right? short. And, you know, who <laughs> yeah, knows how many exactly. other controversies we're going to wade through between now and then. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we saw last session that Governor Noem had a hard time uh, on several of her priorities. She didn't get her repeal of the, of the state uh, grocery sales tax um, passed and some other things that she proposed didn't get passed through. So um, certainly there does seem to be a building up of uh, a little bit of animosity and maybe uh, a difficult relationship to just the, the layers of that just keep just keep building. And so, you know, we'll have to wait and see if 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 legislators really want to carry through and, and we'll have to wait and see, you know, um, what exactly happens with this border deployment and what yeah. it costs. And that's all information we'll have to try to get later. Right. All right. This is a softball question for you. But as I look at this piece, like you reviewed budget documents, public testimony, legislation, state laws, to how important was that level of research to your understanding as a journalist to um, the intent to what lawmakers said at the time was supposed to happen with this emergency and disaster fund? What well, was vital and, you know, to give SDPB a shameless plug, you know, I was able to do that because all of the audio from, uh, you know, when, when legislators uh, appropriated two and a half million to this emergency and disaster fund, every time it was discussed in a committee hearing or on the Senate or House floor that the SDPB was there to capture the audio and archive it. So I was able to, that's what allowed me to go back and listen to all that. And, uh, you know, I mean, immediately when we were told it, it, the money's coming from the emergency and disaster fund, my question was, well, what's that for? Yeah, <laughs> and, right. You know, uh, there's no better way to do that than, uh, I don't think, than to go back and, and listen to, and luckily it, it was a standalone appropriation bill. So there was testimony on it repeatedly through the session. And, you know, I was able to listen to exactly what everybody had to say about it. Yeah. And, you know, it re repeatedly it was, again, it's for tornadoes, it's for droughts, it's for major hailstorms, whatever, uh, to help help South Dakotans recover. Yeah, one more in our remaining minute. Um, this is reporting from Joshua Heyer and Seth Tupper on South Dakota Searchlight. And this is about, again, Governor Nome's investment in an ethanol plant that is part of this carbon pipeline uh, solution, carbon sol or summit carbon solutions, been very controversial about landowner rights. Again, a lot of in-depth reporting Tell me a little bit about uh, your, your findings and just how, how challenging was that to sort of suss out? Well, this one, we got lucky because we got a tip <laughs> you know, on this one, uh, as we mentioned in the story. But, uh, yeah, you know, what's funny about that story is, um, you know, Governor Nome has been disclosing, uh, I, I can't remember, I think since maybe 2010 or thereabouts, that she is an investor in this uh, particular uh, ethanol plant in Granite Falls, Minnesota. And those are uh, disclosure forms that she filed when she was in Congress, mm -hmm. um, where she gets her income from, and their disclosure, uh, you know, forms that she's been filing since she's been governor. And just, I, you know, nobody had really checked to see if she was an investor in an ethanol plant. And uh, we got a tip saying, hey, she is. And so, uh, yeah. Went and verified that and got all the disclosure forms, uh, financial disclosure forms that she filed when she was in Congress and since being governor. And those forms basically are intended to, you know, 
show people and voters, you know, where does this candidate or this office holder get their major sources of income so that we know, you know, what kind of uh, interest do they have and what kind of conflicts might they have. And so, yeah, it turns out that she's, she's an investor in one of the ethanol plants that, that uh, intends to partner uh, with Summit Carbon, Carbon Solutions on a, on a uh, carbon capture pipeline. All right. Um, We're going to have to leave it there. I'll send people to SouthDakotaSearchlight.com for the the full story. Send your tips to Seth Topper, Editor-in-Chief, <laughs> or to the In the Moment team at InTheMoment at SDPB.org. <laughs> Journalism alive and well in the state of South Dakota. Thanks, Seth. Appreciate it. You're welcome. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, if you know anything about the arts scene in South Dakota, you are probably familiar with the work of Hector Curiel. Illustrations, cartoons, caricatures, portraits, books, fine arts. Hector does it all. And he will showcase his newest work in an exhibit called South Dakota in Ink. That's at the Brookings Arts Council. It starts tomorrow. And he has stopped by the Kirby Family Studio here in Sioux Falls once again. Hector, welcome back. Oh, Laurie, thank you so much for having me. You are just a treasure for South Dakotans um, already. So thank you so much for the work that you do. And you also do uh, artist-in-residencies and work with young artists. Tell me a little bit about that part of your work. Um, I've been doing for about over seven years working. Um, I'm part of the roster list. It's a wonderful program because they allow to people in South Dakota to have a, a life artist in different disciplines to work in or doing presentation or performance. So um, that's just a great for me. Uh, it's a bless. It's a bless because let me to get to know peoples and different parts of the states, no? Yeah. And working with different kids and different realities as well. Did someone do that for you when you were a young artist? Do you remember an artist coming to a school or a park or a situation where you thought... No, I wish I could. Yeah, <laughs> I never you had did. a chance. Yeah. And there's always I remark to those kids now about how blessed they are and, and in turn they had people like me to come to working directly with dance, no? Yeah. What gets them excited about creating? Is it like self expression? Is it the materials itself? What lights them mm-hmm. up? Well, I mean the fact to express themselves and different yeah. with different mediums, no? And and explore new uh, venues, and also expand their imaginations, and also gain confidence. Because when they re- able to see, I, when I, I encourage those kids or reward those kids, I can see the smiles and he's proud of about what they have done. It's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you? In a few minutes, we're going to have a conversation about observation mm-hmm. and looking, seeing, really seeing something without judging. And it's partially an arts conversation. It is. Mm-hmm. What is the importance and the role of observing for you when you do your work as an artist, of really looking and mm-hmm. taking the time to see something? Yeah, I, you know, when I, again, back to the, my artist residency program, for me, it was, a, it was a great opportunity to know more about our state. And yeah. because sometimes when you'll be, yes, and you fall for a while, you feel like that is like a South Dakota it is, but after you drive for about an hour, you face a different reality, different landscape, different spaces. And as artists, I can appreciate the beauty in every single place. And and I try to portray through my drawings or paintings to people 
who sometimes they take for granted and they don't perceive what the, the beauty they, they are surrounded. No, it's amazing. That's part of my role and mission as an artist. Tell me what you've brought into the studio today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I call this show uh, South Dakota in Ink because when I start my my training as an artist, I be very involved and very inspired for uh, the, this uh, German artist called uh, Albrecht Dürer. He was a Renaissance artist, and he used a lot of, he was an incredible printmaker. And I've been working um, through using different uh, tools, and basically the medium I use for this show is ink, you know, the black ink like this. Yeah. And then also we use some tools like a deep pen like this, like an old-fashioned way. You no know, people used to dip in ink. Yeah, a fountain and pen. It's a, it's a very delicate yes, pen and with a little bottle of ink. Right. We're and going back in time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, make when you dip in the ink, and you can make different strokes with on the board. And this special board I use for this is called Masonite um, board, like this. Oh, Hector brought his art yeah. supplies. You and can uh, see this on YouTube, but it's yeah. pretty exciting, right? You can hear it right now if you, you listen. You can create this beautiful stroke. And what I love about the Albert Dürer is the beauty he creates by different strokes, different hatches he creates and create different values and perception and feeling deep about perspective. And that's a trying to show in my, it is the main media I use on those drawings. Yeah. I'm going to be part of my show. I love mm -hmm. this. Is that the Brookings Arts Council? Are there certain, so the method and the medium matters. Are there themes that inspired you? Is it, I mean, it's South Dakota mm -hmm. and ink. So are there, are there landscapes that inspired you? People, right. animals, it's, wildlife? Kind of what is, is mm -hmm. opening your heart right now? Right. It's, it's going to be about 16 different pieces and we're trying to portray different aspects of our state, no? from the beginning of the, pro we found in the proud uh, Lakota culture yeah. and trying to um, recognize the value of those culture and our state. These are a lot of examples through my drawings. Also the different group came after that, no? from the West, the new immigrants, and the also uh, iconic People and our states. No, I always obviously Joe Foss is one of them, you know, yes. <laughs> and also other different important people in our state. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this before, and the way your um, work about Joe Foss changed, and like how you see just your human experience is changed mm -hmm. by the art that you do. Is there anything that you're working with now that oh, you know change? The observation was different from what you originally thought, and you're like, oh, it's not that. It's really this. Mm -hmm. What shifted for you as an artist with this show? It's a big question. Right, Hector, it is. Yeah. And I think I tried to go in deep about to find out an uh, important aspect in our state. Sometimes we don't pay attention or they are mm -hmm. forgotten on the time. For example, I can express a little bit about I being involved in doing another graphic novel for another big name on the state and yeah. probably nobody remember that. <laughs> General, General Beetle. General Beetle. Yes. A new graphic novel yes. on and, General uh, Beetle. That's and, uh, great. This is another and I trying to explore other other different uh, personality people important yeah. in different areas in our state and trying to revaluate them because it's important people can learn from history. Yeah. and appreciate where we live. 
All right. It's called South Dakota in Ink. It goes from July 20th, that's just tomorrow, to August 27th at the Brookings Arts Council. Opening reception with Hector is July 27th at 5.30 local time. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Laurie, for your time. appreciate that. We Thanks will, so much. We will see you next time, and uh, we love seeing your new work. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> In touch. So what are you doing right now? I mean, what are you doing besides listening to the sound of my voice? How are you experiencing today's show in the context of your life? Because if you're having one of those classic public radio driveway moments, a lot more is happening than just sound waves hitting your ears. Let's talk now to Christian Mesbier. He explores what it means to truly pay attention and observe your surroundings in his new book. It is called Look, How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World. He's a philosopher and co-founder of the consulting firm Red, and he is an expert on practical applications of human sciences. Christian, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much. I am so looking forward to reading your book a second time. Because I read it the first time, and it's just really worthy of study. So first of all, thank you for that. Historically, uh, in the beginning of the book, you talk about the philosophy of observation and how groundbreaking it was at the time. Can you set that up for our listeners, please? Yes, I can uh, try, at least. The, the philosophy of, of or the philosopher of perception, so the philosopher of seeing, to me, the French philosopher called Maurice Merleau-Ponty. And he's sort of esoteric and very difficult to understand. And when I told my friends about, or my philosopher friends, about writing a book about him, they said, like, good, good luck with that. <laughs> but the idea, the idea he had is we don't pay attention in the same way that a camera pay att pays attention. Humans pay attention to the world through worlds or through holes rather than parts. Mm. And um, in that way, he broke with basically hundreds of years of tradition, thinking of us as thinking things rather than perceiving things. And perceiving is then quite different from, let's say, the traditional view of, of how we see and how we listen. So one example used in the book that resonated with me is if I drew a rectangle and then I drew a triangle on top of the rectangle. Those are two parts, but when I look at it, I see a house. At some point, your brain sort of snaps into the viewpoint of the whole, the gestalt, a, a little bit. And you, you, you teach this to, to young college students, and they struggle with it too because they're, they're quick to form an opinion. Tell me about the difference between observing and then deciding or making up your mind, and how hard is it for us to not just jump to a conclusion then? Right. It's natural for us to see things as holes, 
So when you see a triangle in a square, you see a house. And it's very difficult to unsee that once you've seen it. And the same goes with our relationship to other people. Quite quickly, we make decisions about who they are, what their life is like. And I think the kind of observation I'm trying to teach and, and, and write about is one where you wait a little longer. So you try to arrest your own um, tendency towards seeing things, um, let's say. So something that artists are good at, or some artists are good at, is to wait and just describe what they're seeing. Not concluding, but describing. And when you do that, you start getting a, into a much more direct relationship to the world that I think is very effective in work life. I think it's also closer to truth. And I think it's quite helpful for you. It's a good thing to do. Um, and I saw my students sort of drift away from it around maybe 2018 or something like that. Oh. And this kind of class was forcing them back into looking at the world directly without having opinions about it. Here is another example that resonated with me from your book, because it is such a lovely book, but it is hard to explain on the radio in, you know, seven to ten minutes. But <laughs> you, you talk about the way people, um, you know, go to a coffee shop, for example, and observe the way people move their bodies in space to relation and to each other, and then go to a place with maybe a different culture um, where it looks entirely differently. And that made me remember I have the second child of four siblings, and my oldest brother died. And the three of us who are remaining since then had a few moments where we would realize that when we stood in relationship to each other, we now had to form a triangle instead of a square. And it would be funny if it wasn't, you know, so sad, but just recognizing the way that we were moving our bodies in physical space to create a new shape for our family going forward helped me process that grief. And I think that's the kind of observation that you're talking about, to really take time and notice something that's happening because it's not about the triangle or the square or even the funeral. It's about the human experience of us sort of reshaping ourselves. And that helped me articulate it. Am I on the right track there with how observation could be applied in a personal experience yes and first of all my condolences oh, thank but you. Um, I think I think what you're describing is exactly observation and I think um, well it's it's kind of every day in a way right yeah. Yeah. so if you go into an elevator for instance if you go into an elevator you can see people move in space based on how many people are in the elevator or another thing is how distant standing, how far we stand away from each other. So I'm from Denmark in Northern Europe, and we like, on average, when you look at Danes, they like to stand further away from each other than they do in Southern Europe, say. Mm -hmm. So when, when you see people from Northern Europe um, interact with, in a party, say, people from Southern part of Europe, you end up standing with your, with your back against the wall. Because you're constantly moving away in order to get in the right position. Um, the same with art. If you look at people in an art gallery, you can see them try to get their body in, in the right position in order to appreciate what they're seeing. Yeah. And it's not thought. It's just the body does it. It's embodied. And, um, 
Exactly. I, it's I, an embodied kind of knowledge. Yeah. I'm going to jump in here just because I want people to know that this book is called Look, How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World. I picked a co- up a copy in our local bookstore and the bookseller said, oh, this one is getting a lot of attention. <laughs> and a lot of people were asking for it before its release date. So I think that's a really good sign for how people are, are accepting a book on philosophy, which also has a lot of practical applications in business, by the way, and in creativity, in the arts, in policy making. So uh, Christian, M-A-D-S-B-J-E-R-G is how you spell it, Mesbier. Thank you so much for being here with us. We really appreciate um, your time, and I just adore your book. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. On the next In the Moment, the Christian Science Monitor has released a reporting series on reparations around the world, and one piece focuses on the Land Back movement. So we'll talk with a journalist who wrote that piece, and we'll explore further what Land Back means, what it doesn't mean, particularly for forest management in the Black Hills of South Dakota. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thanks for listening. <laughs>